Happy Sunday, folks. Could you join with me in prayer? Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations in all our hearts be acceptable to you, our strength, our song, and our salvation. Amen. It's a cardinal rule of preaching that you should never show people how the sausage is made. That is, you should never talk about preaching in the sermon itself, which I have now just done. So, since I've already broken that rule, I'm going to jump in with both feet. And I'd like to walk you through my process of study and discovery for today's sermon. It started soon after the last time I was in this pulpit a few weeks ago. And in conversation with a variety of folks the week following, I realized that I had made some assumptions about the scriptures that were not borne out upon closer inspection. And that in fact had significantly narrowed both my reading of the scripture and the ways I offered it to you in interpretation. I'm sorry about that. Of course, all interpretation is limited to a degree, but it is my great hope that in our ministry together as a church, we actually move intentionally toward becoming more open in our listening to God and God's word and to each other. And to do so, we, myself included, need to recognize how our unexamined assumptions about anyone or anything always limit our viewpoint, our capacity for honest dialogue, and our ability to be in full relationship with one another and ultimately with God. And so by way of apology, I determined to be more intentional about questioning my preconceived notions of the meeting for today. Notions about the synagogue and the Sabbath, which form the setting of the scene, about the woman who is at the center of the healing, about Jesus' purpose there, about the synagogue leader and the crowd who are witnesses and participants, and about what it means for today. And so I set about looking more closely at what I thought I knew. After an initial reading of the scripture, this is what I thought I knew, and the way I recalled the story. That one Sabbath, Jesus was teaching in the synagogue, and a crippled woman came to him for healing. He laid his hands on her and freed her from her bent-over condition. And the synagogue leader got mad at Jesus and chastised him for breaking the law and healing on the Sabbath. And then Jesus told him the strict prohibitions of the Sabbath were not God's intention and humiliated his opponents, and the rest of the crowd cheered as the synagogue leaders slunk away with their tails between their legs. That's a story about Jesus answering prayer, confronting the religious leaders with the hypocrisy of their traditions, and winning an argument. But a closer look reveals that that is not the story Luke gives us. And the differences are critical in opening us to the healing that God truly offers. And so to start this deeper look into the 
scriptures, I went back to my eighth grade English class and I did a little sentence structure graph to map out who the characters were and what verbs went with them. I lined up the characters on one side of the paper and their actions on the other. And it was quite enlightening. Some observations emerged from this exercise. First, if there had been a camera on the action in the story, the first scene would have been focused solely on Jesus and the woman who is freed from what binds her. And then the camera shifts away from the woman and to the conversation between Jesus and the synagogue leader. And then the camera ends by panning back and taking in the whole crowd as it rejoices. The formerly bent over woman disappears entirely from the scene as soon as she's able to stand again, praising God. She becomes just another member of the gathering, fully integrated into the body as a whole. Second thing I noticed is that the leader of the synagogue is described as being indignant with Jesus, but then he turns to the crowd to vent his anger, criticizing them for showing up on the Sabbath seeking to be cured. Instead of conversing with, directly with the person he disagrees with, he triangulates the conversation, pointing to the crowd as the ones at fault, even though nowhere, nowhere in the reading does it say that either the woman or anyone else in the crowd had come in search of healing. Third, and I missed this at first, when Jesus responds to the synagogue leader, suddenly Luke moves from saying, Jesus did this, that, or the other, to the Lord answered and said. Jesus' authoritative presence is revealed in the midst of this interaction. And finally, the story ends with the whole crowd rejoicing. And aren't the synagogue leaders part of the whole crowd? This more granular grammatical exploration revealed that this isn't a story about Jesus answering a prayer and investing his opponents. It's a story about bringing wholeness to the whole community, even those who argue over the details of the law. Looking more closely opened up entirely new ways of seeing what was really going on. So with that exercise under my belt, I decided to keep going and to look again at what else I thought I knew about the synagogue and the Sabbath where this scene takes place. Because we're familiar with this sanctuary setting for our religious gathering, you might assume, as I did, that the synagogue was also set up like a church, a formal-ish setting where people went weekly for worship with the leader up front and the leader and the laity, the people separated down below. The word synagogue literally means gathering together. And unlike the temple in Jerusalem, which was designed for worship and ritual, the local synagogues were actually meeting spots, almost like town halls, places for learning and study, making connections, interacting in community. They are open through the week as well as on the Sabbath. 
Synagogues came to prominence in the time of the Babylonian exile, after the temple was destroyed, and offered the Jews a place of refuge to study Torah as they sought new ways of understanding God's word for their people. Synagogues were typically a large open room with a bench around the walls for people to sit on. Unlike in the temple, there was no required separation between men and women or leaders and laity. Various people could engage in teaching about certain passages of scripture, and various people could respond. And argument about interpretations was expected and was an honored custom, an expression of engagement and love for God's gift of Torah. And this was so especially on the Sabbath. The commandment to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy is one of the positive commandments rather than one of the thou shalt nots. We 20th century, 21st century Christians, Western Christians particularly, often mistakenly focus on the Sabbath's prohibitions, regarding them perhaps as backward and unrealistic. Commenting on this passage in his book, Provoking the Gospel of Luke, Richard Swanson emphasizes the need for us to examine our assumed cultural perspectives. When contemporary Americans read this whole story, he says, we imagine that we are much more advanced than the people in the story were. We imagine that Jesus came to bring his ancient world the cultural advancement that they lacked that allows us to work Sunday shifts without getting paid overtime or to eat at restaurants and be certain that there will be workers there to tend to us. Jesus becomes, in this reading, the agent of cultural advancement and the bringer of enlightenment. Or was it flush toilets? I always forget. Reading Swanson's pointed commentary, I realized that I needed to approach this story with the awareness that Sabbath was, and is, intended for the wholeness of God's people. It was a day welcomed and planned for, set aside for joy to remember God's creation and liberation. And I was reminded to immerse oneself in the study of Torah on the Sabbath was a particular blessing. So those gathered in the synagogue that day, Jesus, the woman, the crowd, the synagogue leaders, they weren't, out, they weren't there out of obligation. Or duty. They were there because of desire and joy and gratitude. Being together in community and conversation was the way they honored and rested in the gift of Sabbath, a glimpse of God's promised realm of wholeness, peace, and freedom for all creation. So when the text says that Jesus was teaching in the synagogue one Sabbath, I had to reimagined him out of a pulpit and instead sitting among the people, interacting with them in a familiar and beloved practice of community study. And it was from that vantage point that he noticed a woman in the crowd who was completely bent over. I had to check my assumptions about her, too. Realizing that I had sort of conflated her story with a bunch of other healing miracles in the Gospels. 
And I was thinking that she might have snuck in to ask Jesus to heal her, or that she was an outsider to the crowd, or that the people were judging her infirmity as some sort of God's punishment for sin. But again, closer inspection shifted those views. The grammatical implication when it introduces the woman is that she came to the synagogue regularly. Far from being an outsider who just came for healing, apparently this was her community. This was her people. As is the case for so many of us, it looks like it was her long ingrained practice to gather with her faith community for the Sabbath. And nowhere does it say that she came to be cured of her condition. She didn't interrupt the Sabbath services to seek Jesus' healing. Instead, Jesus saw her among the gathered folks and took the initiative to speak to her, calling her to him and declaring her loose from the spirit that had bound and bent her over for so many years. And the healing was in his words alone, his declaration that she was already released from her infirmity. And then once he laid his hands on her curved shoulders, his words sunk in, and she stood up. She stood up and praised God. Now, that could have been the end of the story. But as with so many of the stories in the Gospel, Luke wants to show how Jesus' presence brings God's promised realm to the widest possible audience. From the shepherds on the hillsides and the angels in heaven at his birth, to the teachers in the temple when Jesus was 12, to stories that made the despised Samaritans into heroes, Luke repeatedly shows how Jesus breaks boundaries and challenges assumptions to widen his people's awareness of the circle of God's care. And so, when one of the synagogue leaders is incensed that Jesus had broken a Sabbath law by healing, Jesus, like any good Torah teacher, engages with him. If you unbind your work animal on the Sabbath to feed and water it, shouldn't the Sabbath be even more appropriate for the unbinding of his daughter of Abraham and Sarah? If God's gift of the Sabbath is a blessing to remind people of God's liberation, then liberating this woman on the Sabbath redoubles that blessing, does it not? Even by naming her a daughter of Abraham and Sarah, Jesus calls the gathering to see her as one of them, not as a crippled woman bound to be that way forever, but as a child of God on equal footing with every one other person there, with the possibility for change and a voice that could lead the congregation in praise. This wasn't a story about Jesus answering prayer, I realized. It was about Jesus noticing where someone hurt and taking the opportunity to bring both her and the community she was part of into a new awareness of God's possibility for freedom. Jesus' declaration that this woman is loose from her infirmity wasn't just for her healing. It was meant to bring greater wholeness to the entire crowd. 
even when that wholeness meant breaking long-held traditions. It was meant to be a glimpse of God's promised realm of God in the here and now. And as I realized that, some new questions emerged. And so I offer these not as conclusions today, but as questions for us to ponder, to broaden our viewpoint, to increase our capacity for honest dialogue, and to deepen our ability to be in full relationship with one another and ultimately with God. I ask these questions with the intent that they lead us to greater healing. I think about the woman Jesus noticed and I wonder, who among us feels bound by some force that keeps us curved inward or isolated from community? Or perhaps the better question is, who among us hasn't felt that way? How have you heard Jesus calling to you and hoping you to stand? Or are you still listening for that inviting voice? Who might be waiting for you to notice them? and to speak a word that reminds them they are already whole and free. I think about the synagogue leaders defending their deeply held traditions, and I wonder, how can we engage with one another, faithfully disagreeing at times over our sense of God's call to us, without becoming defensive or pointing the finger at others? How can we seek dialogue that opens us to new understandings and possibilities rather than pitting us against each other or causing some to disengage altogether? How can our conversations, even the hard ones, be a witness to God's promised realm in the here and now? I think about the synagogues of Jesus' day an invention born of necessity during exile. And I wonder, what new, lasting, and inclusive expressions of our faith are already being birthed through the exile of this COVID pandemic? What assumptions do we need to examine about the way church is supposed to look? Is it possible that some of our long-held traditions might need to be broken open to show us new and better ways to connect with God and with each other. And I think about the gift of Sabbath, and I wonder, how can we ground our gatherings, not in duty or obligation, but in joy, the deep, deep joy that comes from knowing who and whose we are together, and from sharing that sense of belonging with ever wider circles of connection. As I was writing those words, I kept remembering the choir standing around the sanctuary and enveloping us in song on Pride Sunday. And I was thinking, that's what Jesus' healing voice sounds like, calling us to wholeness. Draw the circle wide.
draw it wider still. Let this be our song. No one stands alone. Standing side by side, draw the circle. Draw the circle wide. God, the still point of the circle, round you all creation turns. Nothing lost, but forever held in God's gracious arms. Let our hearts touch far horizons, so encompass great and small. Let our loving know no borders, faithful to God's call. Let the dreams we dream be larger than we've ever dreamed before. Let the dream of Christ be in us and open every door. Draw the circle. Draw the circle wide. Draw it wider still. Let this be our song. No one stands alone. Standing side by side. Draw the circle. Draw the circle wide. Amen. Amen. Amen.